in the series on the biography of Moses. We, uh, we want to be more like him because we learned last week Moses is a man of character. In Hebrews 11, he is not only a man of character, he's a man of faith. And the book tells us three times how faithful he was. And so I want to encourage you to be more like Moses. Persistent, faithful, strong, willing to take risk. But in today's message, I don't want you to be like Moses at all. So this is how not to be. So the amazing thing about Moses, the guy that splits the Red Sea, the guy that called down the plagues upon Egypt, the guy that led his people into the promised land for him, almost him, for this incredible man of God, we get to see today that he is a lot like us. So we're going to see some of his insecurities and we're going to see uh, how he can be like us. And I, we just don't want to, we don't want to do what he does here. And you'll, you'll see why when we get into the message. So he's, uh, right now we're, we're, we're 80 years in. So we did two sermons on the biography of Moses when he was born and when he grew up. And um, last week we ended with him killing the Egyptian and then fleeing into the desert, running away. And now he has spent his first 40 years, he was learning and, and being educated by the highest culture that the world has ever seen in, in the lap of luxury, everything that a man could, or a woman could possibly want. That's what, that was his first 40 years, you know, and then something took place in his heart where he was identifying with God's people instead of the Egyptian people because he had two mothers. He had an Egyptian adoptive mother and he had a real mother that told him the word of God. And so something shifted and, and we talked about him acting out it, it, not necessarily in God's will. He was doing the right thing the wrong way and he kills an Egyptian and then like he's got a mark on his head. So he's got to run. He's got to flee. So he, he flees into the Arabian desert of all places. He is he's an outcast now. He's, he's on the run. He's got to go into hiding. He's a refugee of sorts. He's alone. And if you know the story, he's at a well and he rescues seven women from some bad guys, beats them up and and then uh, falls in love with Sephora, one of the, the gals. And Sephora happens to be a pastor's kid. Her father is Jethro, or Uel, and he is the priest of Midian. We're not even quite sure we know where Midian is, by the way. But we're talking, we're talking Arabia. And so he falls in love with an Arab woman. It's usually something that most pastors don't talk about. But he should be marrying a nice Jewish girl, but, you know, that ship sailed because he's on the run and he's hiding. And so he marries Zipporah, an Arab woman, and his father-in-law is some, some type of priest. And most likely, even though we don't know where Midian is, they're probably a Bedouin traveling type of, of people. So they got themselves in an RV and they just drive around all over the place, <laughs> kind of like the Skultons. So they're just, they're just kind of like vagabonds, right? 
So it's a traveling group of people. So that's why we don't necessarily know where it is. But we, we know that it's in, it's in Arabia somewhere. And he does another 40 years of just being a husband, of just being a shepherd. And these are the silent years. We don't know anything. 40 years of nothing going on. You know, he doesn't rescue anybody else. He doesn't hear from God. He doesn't write anything down. He's just a shepherd. He's got a couple of kids. Uh, The wise man once said, life is good. How many people have seen Nacho Libre? (laughs) Life is good. Life is good for him. He has no worries. He's got to kick a couple of sheep around every once in a while, but, you know, he just goes home every night and gets in his tent. He's got his beautiful Arab wife that he gets to hang out with all the time, even though she doesn't shave her armpits. But everything is good. He gets to hang out with her. He actually likes his father-in-law. Life is good. Likes his father-in-law. They get along. They sit around the fire and smoke cigars all night long. Complain about their sheep problems. It's good. He's now 80 years old. 40 years of being trained up into the highest culture the world has ever seen. And another 40 years of doing absolutely nothing. Besides kicking a sheep every once in a while and growing out his beard and just being awesome, enjoying life. (laughs) And then... One day, everything gets turned upside down. All right, let's read. Exodus chapter 3. We're going to do chapter, chapter 3 and chapter 4 today. And then we're also going to do John. I was told not to use my fancy little computer thing for my Bible today. John chapter 8. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, whom he likes. I put that in there. It's not in the Word of God. I added that. (laughs) The priest of Midian. And he led the flock to a far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. We also call it Sinai. Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, the same place. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire, but it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over there and I will see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. I was going to show you the clip from the Ten Commandments. It's super cheesy, and I love you that much. That just can't, couldn't do it. We've come a long ways. And Moses said, here I am. Don't come any closer, God said. Take 
off your sandals, for the place that you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am... Okay, why don't you underline that for a sec. Then God said, I am... Underline, I am. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. I want to encourage you all to write in your Bibles. My wife, Mako, preached this February 2018. I have it in my notes. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, and I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering, and so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out to the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. All the sights. <laughs> and now the cry of Israel has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians oppressed them. So now I'm going, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Okay, so let's stop there. So, again, life is good, life is simple, it's not complicated. And now all of a sudden, there's this burning bush, and life gets extremely complicated at this point. Like, everything is changing for Moses. And deep down inside, he knows it. Like, he knows that that what he's experiencing, the presence of God, it says the angel of the Lord, but we know that this is is God's presence. I don't have time to get into the angel of the Lord, because we're going to be getting into a lot of different stuff today. But he knows that when he comes in and he sees and he witnesses this this burning bush, like there's something going on besides there being a brush fire out in the desert because he doesn't he doesn't see it consumed. All right. Side note. Incidentally, okay, it's clear that Moses is having what we call a religious experience. One of the callings of my life is that. The church, my flock, has a religious experience. I love it. Like it rings my bell whenever somebody in the church has a religious experience. Like I don't even need any more the rest of my life, just as long as I can see our kids get one. I don't need to go into ecstasy anymore because, like, when you guys feel the the liquid love of God, that's what does it for me. I love that. That's what I live for. I want to see people touched by God. That's what's going on. Like, this is a religious encounter. Like, there, there is something deep going on. Now, uh, like, Moses is hearing God's audible voice. Now, the good news about the current faith that we are in, the new covenantal faith, is that you have the opportunity to hear from God each and every day. Did you know that? All you got to do is just open up your Bible and you can hear God's voice. You want to hear God's voice? It's right there. And yet, there's something unique, something special going on with this burning bush. 
Okay, incidentally, it's better that you hear this from me, that I prepare you in advance, because you will hear it inside of a cultural context that's outside of church. Whenever somebody goes into a religious experience or they, they go into an ecstatic state where all of a sudden, like, God is real. Like, you, you can reason your way to God, but you know God is real when you feel God's presence. Yeah? The world will lie to you, and they'll just say, well, you're in an ecstatic state because you're delusional. Um, you are, you're, you're experiencing ecstasy because of some chemical mix-up or some sort. What you'll hear today is that you can, and there, like, there probably is some truth to this. It's just the path that you do not want to take. Trust me. But you can go into spiritual experience, realms, dimensions, whatever you want to call it. You can do it through foreign substances. So you can, you can get yourself some DMT. You can get yourself some LSD. You can smoke lots of weed, and you can get yourself into a spiritual state. Whether it's real or not, if it's real, like you should not be there. You got there illegally. And bad things happen when you go into spiritual realms illegally. Don't do that. You'll open yourself up to demonic warfare that you're not equipped to handle. So stay away from drugs, kids. Okay. Sorry for getting preachy on you there. Just care for you, that's all. <laughs> so, what you'll hear from the world is, oh, Moses is just tripping. No, I'm serious. It's out there. It's better that you hear it from me first than you're going to hear it from the world if you start evangelizing your friends. Oh, so what's really going on is Moses is just a little too close to the burning bush. Okay? What they'll say is it's just, he's, you know, he's hanging around the ganja a little too much. Do, they, do, you, do kids say ganja anymore? They probably don't, do they? They don't, they don't say that. Do they say grass? I don't, what? That's 70s talk. Man, okay. Um, yeah, so some critics will say that Moses is having a psychological trip because he's, because this bush that's burning, whether it's an acacia or DMT or whatever. So this is, what's, this is what he's experiencing. Now, a couple problems with that. One, obviously, as a person of faith, that's problematic. But let's, let's just go there and let's just reason. Because I can tell you right now, you can have, an ex- you can have a religious experience without substances. So don't let anybody say, oh, he's just tripping. Okay, well, yeah, he's tripping, but he's tripping on God. And that's good enough. So don't let the world tell you that it's, this, is, this is what's really going on. We experience it now whenever you know, we have some ayahuasca experience. That's not, what, that's not what's going on. You know how I know that? Because um, I've been able to trip without drugs. So that argument doesn't work. Furthermore, they can't reproduce that type of experience by lighting 
a bush on fire unless it's like a bunch of marijuana. <laughs> so the, the, the acacia tree can't get you high unless you do certain, I don't know, I'm not a, I, it can't be done. So don't let the world lie to you about things to, to, to breed a little doubt in you. Don't let the world say, oh, you know, religious experiences, they're just all in your head. They're just all emotional. They're just all that. No, they're real, everybody. God's real. Okay, so that was my little side, my little side trip. But what I really want to highlight is that this bush that's on fire and it's not being consumed. It seems like a very simple thing, but like what in the world is going on? Like, I'm sure Moses has probably seen brush fires, but this one gets his attention and he, he draws him in. And he gets to the foot of this mountain, Mount Horeb. Before everything went down, it was not called the mountain of God. But now it's going to begin to build a reputation because God's stuff is going to happen at the foot of this mountain. Something supernatural is taking place because a very simple bush is not being consumed by fire. You know, it's probably one of these thorn bushes. It's not some exotic tree somewhere. It's not on a secret fountain. It's just like a tumbleweed. Nothing's, nothing special about it. It's like a thorny tumbleweed. And there's a fire that's burning inside of it. Now, this is symbolic. This is important. We see, we see actually, we see the, some character in the nature of God's being inside of this simple illustration. What does it say? It tells us, the fire that does not die tells us that God is transcendent. That there is a transcendence of God the Father. Meaning it is above anything that you could possibly think of or imagine. We have the ability to describe who God is and what God does. Like we understand bits and pieces of his character and his personality. For example, we know that God is truth, right? Like we understand that truth. We understand, okay, God's true. Whatever, whatever he does, it's true. And yet, even though that we get a, a snapshot of his truth, he is still transcendent and his truth goes far beyond anything that we could possibly imagine. God is love, Amen. God is love. One of the shortest verses in the Bible that the whole thing is built around. God is love. We know that. And yet, us finite humans, we're, we're, we can't even scratch the surface of understanding God's love. It is, it's infinite. It's just out there. It's, it, we, we don't understand God's love. We might have glimpses. We might have feelings. We might see it every once in a while. But it, his love is transcendent. It's higher. It's higher than us. and It's higher than anything that we could possibly imagine. God is transcendent. It's so cool when we get a glimpse of the transcendent. And, well, that's what's going on with Moses. Okay, so God is outside of time, he's out of space, he's out of reality, like it's just like he created absolutely everything, it's, it's impossible, I mean he's spinning galaxies off every second here, it's impossible to understand and comprehend the immensity of who God is. And yet he's burning it in a bush, a regular 
tumbleweed. He's burning in that bush, something that should just burn away. And what this is saying is that God is very fascinated with eminence, meaning that, well, yes, he's transcendent, but he's also eminent, meaning that he is here in our midst, either as a bush or as a man, Jesus Christ. He is here in the form of something that we can relate to. I can relate to the thorn bushes and, and tumbleweeds because I've fell in a few of them. I can re- relate to thorn bushes because, well, I've had to hang out with some of you guys for some time. Some of you are a little thorny, right? Sometimes people can be a little prickly. Sometimes life is hard. And there, are, there is no fruit on the vine. It's temporary. And, and so we see a, a beautiful snapshot of how God interacts with us. The, the transcendent God in a, in a form that we can relate to. He didn't have to show up in the bush. He didn't have to show up in a flame of fire. But this is how it, I mean, this was speaking to Moses. Now, Moses responds. He says, I am the God of your father. Your father is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because Moses says, here I am. We are beginning to know God is, God, this is an introduction. We have a burning bush, but this is more about an introduction of who he is and what he does. Now, you might hear this term, the God, the, you know, the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what we're, what we're talking about is this covenantal relationship that God made with, with Abraham from the beginning of God's people. He is telling us, no, I am, I am that God. Now, what's amazing about this, which you might have like, skipped over when, we, when you read this, you know, I am the God of your, of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's a present tense type of a, a language there. It's present tense. I am the God of Abraham. Not that, this, is, this should encourage you. Not that I was the God of Abraham. Amen. Oh, I was that God of Jacob. I was the God of Isaac. But they're dead now. I was their God. And he says, I am their God. Still, present tense. You know what that implies? That they're in, they're in God's presence. That they still exist. That they're still, in their way, alive. He is that God. And then he goes over, I'm the God, you know, I'm going to send you into the land flowing with milk. I mean, we're going to kick out all those ites. All those parasites. We're going to kick them all out. And I'm preparing a place for you. And the reason why he names all of those bad people, because he's named them once before, because there is a promise, there's a covenant that, that those evil people are going to be taken care of. And so he is just reintroducing himself, and he's re- reintroducing his plan. He's reintroducing his covenant relationship with his people. He's letting Moses know who he really is. That's absolutely fascinating. And Moses has the good sense when God says, Oh, you, you need to take off your sandals. 
because you're entering into holy ground. Now, you know, in an Egyptian temple, you take off your sandals because you don't want to track in dirt and mud and other stuff that gets on your feet because you've been walking around outside in an ancient world. It's very different than our concrete jungles that we have here. And so in order for you to go into the presence of a God, you needed to wash your feet because you, you can't take the filth into the temple. So what's interesting about this is that they're in the desert. There's sand everywhere. There's sand right up to that burning bush. But it's not about the actually what's really going on. It's about the condition and the attitude of the heart. So like Moses' feet are dirty, when he takes his sandals off, they're still going to be dirty when, they, when he approaches the altar. But he does it. Well, he's going he's gonna to argue with God in a bit. We'll get to that in a second. But he doesn't argue with God on this one. He, he takes this reverent position where he's like, okay, Lord, I'm going to take my sandals off. And then he gets down on his face, and he's like, here I am. So he's listening. He's responding, right? Most of us are able to get to this point. It is amazing how our human nature and our character, even though that we are in the presence of God, even though that we know enough to take our sandals off, even though we know enough to be in the posture of prayer and to put our head down and to, to, to know, that we're, in the, you know that we're in the presence of God, and yet we still have this incredible ability to complain about stuff and to make excuses. And this is where we don't want to be like Moses. We don't want to begin to talk like he does in this situation. Ready? Okay, here's the big but. Right? So Moses, uh, back to verse 10. So God has said, okay, it's time to get my people out of slavery, out of bondage. The slave drivers are driving them into the ground. The people are calling out. I have a covenant with them. It's time. The silent years are over. Right? He had 40 years of being prepared. He had 40 years of silence in the desert. God is preparing him this whole time. He should be ready to go. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out? So immediately, and this is very common to what we do, immediately right out of the gate, he uh, he projects and confesses doubt. Who am I? Now you got the wrong guy, God. Okay, reminder, this is a transcendent God. He kind of knows some stuff. And Moses is correcting him. You got the wrong guy. Who am I? I can't do this. You got the wrong guy. And God said, I will be with you. I will be with you. You're ready for this. You can do this. You can step out. You can take risk. I am with you. You've had enough training. You've had enough time. Now it is the time to act, and I will be with you. At this, and this will be the sign to you that is I who have sent you. When you have been brought before the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God. Okay, so first excuse he gives. 
Who am I? Send somebody else, right? Here comes a second excuse. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your father has sent me to you. And when they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? Okay, you ready? So now he's kind of like, how am I going to do that? What am I going to say to these people? They're not going to believe me. How am I going to get them to believe me? And here we go. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my forever name. Amen? We'll get into this. This is my forever name. The name by which I am to be remembered for generations to generations. Go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and I have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you out of your misery in in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Parasites, Hivites. There we go again, okay. To a land flowing with milk and honey. So this is a very powerful moment when he says, okay, what am I, who am I going to say has sent me? Because keep in mind, like, this is the world of the gods. We think that, you know, in our world, we have presidents and dictators, and we just coordinated a king, I guess. Charles, yeah. He's got that funny hat on now. But in the ancient world, in their mind, and maybe quite literally, they were ruled by gods. There is obviously one God. But in their imagination, it's like, well, there's God and then there's Horus. And so they had it all mixed up. And so he had to be crystal clear. He's like, maybe Moses was a little confused. Like, which God am I talking to right now? I'm God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What am I, what am I to say your name is? This is so important. You need to say that I am that I am has sent you. Now, what, is that, what in the world does that mean? I am, in this Hebrew language, is the most reverent and respected word in the Bible. I am is translated into what we call the tetragrammatron. Can everybody say that? Tetragrammatron. It's like a 90s techno band. Just remember that, tetragrammatron. And do we have a little graphic? I have a little graphic for you, maybe, of the tetragrammatron. Can we bring up that slide? There we go. YHWH. I am. This is God's forever name. And they wouldn't say it. What's so cool about the Jews is they wouldn't say his name. They had all, they had all kinds of other names for God. The Bible is filled with with all kinds of descriptive names. 
Elohim and El Shaddai and Elroy and all these really cool descriptive names. But this is the most important one. I am? That's kind of weird. What in the world does that mean? I am? I am that I am? How boring is that? I want the God that saves. I want the God that provides. I want the God that conquers. Like, these are different attributes of God. And this one's a little bit strange, right? I am that I am. Like, they didn't have a... They weren't, didn't have, like, the, the A-E-I-O-U's. So they couldn't fill it in. Regardless, the Jews wouldn't even attempt to say this. The Bible where it says, do not use the Lord your God's name in vain, that's, that doesn't mean you're saying, don't say gosh darn it, or oh fudge. Or, like, that's not what it means. What it means is, like, when you're reading the Holy Scriptures, don't you dare try to say the name of God. Why? Because you have unclean lips, and you can't pronounce something so pure. So beautiful with unclean lips, so don't even try. So whenever the you know, good little Jewish boys and girls are reading the scriptures and they came across the Tetragrammatron, they would just replace it. They would say Adonai instead of Yahweh. We added the, we, you know, eventually when Hebrew begins to develop a little bit, they add some little notes and some little markers up above and we begin to fill it in. And then we, we, we think that it's Yahweh. But we're not even sure if that's what it sounds like either. Regardless, we shouldn't be saying it. Uh, maybe not. I don't know. So we came up with this word Yahweh. Um, you might also have heard this term Jehovah. Anybody have any door knockers to come to your house? Okay, so the Jehovah's Witnesses, which are all about, they're, they're obsessed with the name of God. They believe that the name of God is Jehovah. Um, it's close. But they got that information from German scholars that screwed up the scriptures. So technically, as close as we could get, it's Yahweh. I am that I am. Let me try to describe it a little bit more to make a little more sense. I am who I am, Yahweh, Tetragrammatron, that's what it means. Other, we, we lose so much in the translation. It's, un, it's unfair, unfortunate, we don't understand the richness of the Hebrew language. My wife is threatening to take Hebrew right now. Because she wants to, <laughs> she's just so fascinated by the word of God and what we lose. It also comes from the verb to be, meaning that I am who I am. I am to be this God. And another way to say it is, I will be who I will be. It is transcendent talk. I am the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. I am. I'm constant. From the verb to be, I will be who I will be. Another translation says, he who causes things to be. God the creator. What is amazing about this moment is we have God revealing himself that he is the I am. Now, get your Bibles if you have it. Turn with me to the Gospel of John. And this is so fun. 
because all, the book is all connected. And we're talking about a love story between God and his people. And Jesus is the center of this love story. We'll start off on 49. The Jews are questioning Jesus. They're grilling him. They don't like what he's doing. He's changing the world. He's helping people. He's healing people. And the religious elite don't like it. He's fighting in the face of spiritual tyranny. And they're calling Jesus names. They're calling him demon-possessed. And Jesus says, I'm not possessed by a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I do not... uh, I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. I tell you the truth. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. There's a nice little promise for you today. At this, the Jews exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. And yet you say... If anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Okay. I mean, that's actually a question everybody in this, need, in this room needs to ask. You need to ask Jesus, who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you did not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it, and he was glad. So Father Abraham had a vision of Jesus. Even though he didn't quite understand it, he knew that this day would come. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus himself slipped away from them into the temple grounds. All right. So, Jesus. Okay, why is this a big deal? I mean, this is like the biggest slap in the religious face you could possibly do. Like, Jesus doesn't come right out and say, hey, everybody, I'm God in the flesh. He didn't need to do that because he just told the elites that I am. Do you guys see the connection there? Do you see the connection from Exodus when when God in the burning bush says to Moses, I am that I am, and then Jesus, when he is doing warfare, says, I am? Jesus is saying right here and there that he is God in the flesh, that he is Yahweh. And they're ticked off. Like that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Now it's on, and they're going to kill and crucify him because it's blasphemy from their point of view, but it's truth. He is the one that has always been. He's eminent. He is the one that brings things into being. He is God. All right. So, 
if that's not good enough for Moses, I lost my marker. I know. It's all right. I know where the book is. See, this is why I need my fancy little computer thingy so I wouldn't have to do this. Let's go skip down to Exodus chapter 3, verse 21. I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed to you, this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in their house for articles of silver and gold and clothes, which you will put into your sons and daughters, and then they will plunder the Egyptians. This is like a really cool, nice thing. It's a nice little perk. They're going to leave Egypt, and they're going to plunder it at the same time. I like it. All right, here we go. Chapter 4. Moses answered, what if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? See, right there. The doubt that we talked about that you're going to get from the world when you begin to talk about the amazing things of God, maybe even life after death, maybe even a supernatural experience, and it's like, oh, it's just all chemicals. It's just all weird psychology. It's not real. Look, it's funny. This is happening back then. The Lord did not appear to you. That lie has been going on for a very long time, right? The Lord did not appear to you. Don't believe that lie. If the Lord hasn't appeared to you yet, he will. Then the Lord said to him, what is in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take, take it by the tail. And so Moses reached out and took the hold of the snake and turn it and turn it back into a staff into his hand. The Lord said, is it so that they may believe that the the Lord, the God of the fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to you. So he's supposed to do this sign, but there's a couple more signs to come. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside of your coat. So Moses put his hand inside of his coat, and when he took it out, it was leprous like snow. You got the leper hand. Like, that's some of the creepiest stuff in the Bible. Like, that one... Like, I think I'd rather deal with the snake than that. That is the creepiest thing, man. That would freak me out. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak. When he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Um, the Egyptians were also completely obsessed with cleanliness. It's one reason why they were so successful as a nation. Because they were probably even cleaner than the Jews with all of their laws. So this is an interesting little point. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. But if they don't believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water that you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Verse 10, then Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I have been, I have 
never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since, when you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Once again, he's making up excuses. Like God just used him to turn a, a staff into a snake, and he had this creepy thing with his hand. Like there's cool stuff going on. Like God is moving. God's doing amazing things. And yet he still makes excuses. I can't speak. I don't know if he had a stuttering problem or, or what was the issue. We don't know. But he is using that to identify himself and to disqualify himself from what God wants him to do. Don't do this, everybody. Like God's got a calling for you. He's, got, he's led you somewhere. And we all have limitations and some types of disabilities, some types of insecurities. We all have an excuse. Don't allow your excuse to derail your plan. The Lord said to him, who gave man his mouth? Isn't that great? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will help you. I will help you. I will help you. I will help you speak and teach you what to say. And then Moses just goes all in. Oh, Lord, please send someone else. God, what a big whiner. I mean, Moses responds. Moses, or God responds to Moses. Moses, would, would you like some cheese with your wine? Ah, never gets old, sorry. All right, here we go. This is, where we, this is what we don't want to do. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, what about your brother Aaron? Like, okay, we're not quite, we don't know, we're not able to read between the lines here, but God is starting to get a little frustrated with Moses' list of excuses and insecurities. God gives Moses everything that he needs to be successful. Amen? He gets it all. Like, wait, what does he get, Pastor Josh? He gets a stick. <laughs> One of the cool things about the Bible and about this story, like I know that the Bible is a unique literary source written by the hand of God because of, one, because of this story. Because what does Moses get to lead God's people to step into the miraculous? He gets a stick. Like Moses says, what's in your hand? I was like, I got this, I got this thing that I beat sheep with. And so God's going to be asking us that question. What's in your hand? Now, what's cool about the word of God in this? If this was written from uh, a pagan perspective... If this was traditional mythology, whenever the hero goes into the cave to experience the, the, the transcendent presence of a divine creature, a god of some sort, whenever this defining moment takes place in the hero's journey, the god or goddess gives the hero a magic amulet, a charm of some sort. How many people saw Clash of the Titans? Yeah, Clash of the Titans. 
cool movie, both the old one and the new one. They're both really good. And so whenever the hero goes into the presence of one of the gods or the demigods, they get some type of tool to help them, whether it's like a gold little flying owl thing or a magic shield, the sword of Gryffindor. The hero always gets a supernatural weapon. If, a, if this was true mythology, if this was true pagan literature, then Yahweh would have snapped off one of those flaming branches and would have given it to Moses and said, Moses, here's your supernatural weapon to defeat the Pharaoh. You have a flaming branch that will never die. Here's your sword of Gryffindor. But no. God says, what is in your hand? A stick. Do you know that what you have in your hand is good enough? Do you know that what is in your hand, God can use it for greater things? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So don't despise what is in your hand. Mm -hmm. It's good. And if it's not good, God will make it good. He has given you everything that you need to be successful both in the spiritual world and in the natural world. So don't despise what's in your hand. When God gives you a spiritual gift, He is saying to you, not by your might, but by my might, you will overcome the plans of the enemy. You will, you will put the, the principalities of the air on notice. You will have authority over, over disease. The leprous hand. The thing that would have freaked me out was nothing for God. God is communicating to Moses like, no, this stuff, this is my play stuff. You're going to be fine. And if these signs aren't good enough, I'll turn water into wine. Isn't that cool? There's the first little reference to that miracle at Canaan. Turning water into blood. Turning water into wine. All right, let's wrap her up, huh? All right, Jim, if I could have the band come on up. I didn't get to Sephora. All right, real quick. Finally, finally, Moses is, he's going to submit. He's going to, he knows, he's, he's, he knows that he can't get out of this. Because God is, God is making a way, either with his brother Aaron or giving him everything that he needs. Now Moses has no excuse to do God's will. Now a man that was smart enough to take his sandals off in the presence of God also happens to be the same man that was dumb enough to break the covenant of God by not circumcising his kid. So Moses is going to go on this journey. He's submitting, to the, he's submitting to God's will. He's like, okay, I'll use Aaron. I'm going to do this thing. You're going to turn my 
by sticking to a snake. It's going to be, we'll just see what happens, God. I'll go along. And yet, on the way, on their journey to Egypt, he's got two kids at this time. One of them, he didn't circumcise. Okay, why is that a big deal? Because that's a covenantal sign. It's a sign to the outside world that God's people have been set apart. They are a holy nation. So this is a physical sign that Jews are different. Jews are set apart. It's a a big deal. And Moses was going to go ahead reluctantly and going to do God's plans, and yet he lacked this one dedication to a covenantal relationship with God. When he, when he was finally ready to move and he didn't take care of this one little problem, he didn't take care of this one little problem, this one little detail, this is one of the strangest stories in the Bible. God's like, all right, now I've had it. I'm going to smoke that guy. And God was going to kill him. I mean, God's yesterday, today. I mean, he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Like, he doesn't mind. I don't say God's going to kill you for being disobedient, but I don't know. He might kill me. That one little detail was so important that Moses' smoking hot Arab wife figured it out. I'm not quite sure. We know that she was mad. We know that she was mad at her husband. And she circumcised her child to save her husband's life. We don't know if she did it out of um, reverence to the Lord or if she did it because she was ticked off at her husband. I don't know. I'm not quite sure. what. what There's different interpretations of what was actually going on in her heart. Regardless, she doesn't go to Egypt with her husband. So what's the point for us right now? The point for us. One, don't be like Moses in the burning bush. Like, take your sandals off. Take it seriously. Take your time. Your calling might require a training in time. But when God appears, be obedient all the way. God is speaking to you. Every time you open up your Bible, he's speaking to you. But there are also milestone spiritual moments. I want you to think really hard. I want you to review your history. I want you to turn on your spirit. And I want you to ask God right now, when were your burning bush moments? Because those are few and far between. That's when God speaks to us from a different perspective, a transcendent, eminent perspective. And action is required at burning bush moments. So, when have you had a burning bush moment in your life? And if you haven't, ask yourself, 
Am I being prepared or am I in a desert season? And are you receptive and are you curious when the burning bush moment takes place? I've had burning bush moments in my life. I wish I could have a burning bush moment every day of my life. But that's just not how God works. God works in seasons and rhythms and truths and character building. God gives you what you want when you need it. God's ways are not our ways. It just requires obedience. It requires faithfulness. And I would even say, in order to be successful, it requires us not to complain about stuff so much. Not make excuses so often. Not trying to disqualify ourselves because we're afraid of where God's leading us. So be brave. Be strong. Know that God can turn water into wine. Jesus is the great I am. Grab your elements. This blood washes down upon us and sets us free from bondage and slavery. Some of you have got a slave driver in the form of a spiritual spirit that's whipping you. Let's not let that happen anymore. Receive the blood of Jesus Christ and allow Jesus to be your deliverer to set you free and to lead you into the promised land. It can only happen by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So receive the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and step out of bondage. You might not be there yet. You might not ever even get there. But we are on the way to the promised land. On the way to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. Some of us will reach it. Some of us will die in the desert. If you think you're going to die in the desert, quit complaining about stuff. That was the, that's, what, that's why they died. And in the desert, we get this. The manna from heaven, which supplies all of our needs according to his glorious riches. Receive the body of Christ get you through the desert seasons.